0: Rehabilitation after limb loss. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and
1: welcome to this edition of Wheel Life. I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcroft. And I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, Caroline. How are you? I'm really good. How about you today? Yeah, really good, thank you. Enjoying the slightly crisper weather as we move through to autumn. And yeah, feeling happy and and excited to be chatting with you and with our very special guest as well. Yes, we have another guest today.
0: Today's guest is Scott Richardson, who is Business Development Manager at Pace Rehabilitation, the UK's largest independent provider of amputee rehabilitation services. And he's here to talk to us today about his own experience as a motorbike rider, an amputee,
1: and how people can rehabilitate after such serious injuries. Welcome, Scott.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: No, it's really great to have you. And for you coming to sort of share your story and your personal story, while also telling us a bit more about rehabilitation and your work with PACE Rehabilitation. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. I first have
0: come across you in a work capacity when we've spoken about sending a claimant on one of my files through to PACE to talk about a potential amputation. And we'll move on to what PACE can do and what rehabilitation around an amputee is moving forward later in the podcast. But first of all, let's do a bit of background about you, Scott. Before we get into Game of Thrones and Star Wars and all of those exciting things a bit later, if we go back to 2000 and the initial accident. Accident where you unfortunately lost your leg.
2: Yeah, so um, motorcycles have been in my family in my entire life. And um, with biking also comes uh, speed. And I got into racing when I was about 17, 18 years of age and always wanted to race in the Isle of Man. And so did so at the Manx Grand Prix from the mid nineties until I finished fifth place in the senior Manx Grand Prix in 1999. And I thought, okay, time to move up to the TT where you get paid to ride rather than spending all your hard earned money. And uh, Unfortunately, in my first race there, I touched a a damp patch of road and slid off uh, feet first into a dry stone wall at about over 100 miles an hour. And uh, Fortunately, or luckily, that word comes up a lot in my life, luckily my legs took all the impact into the wall. and uh, It resulted in some fairly serious injuries and a fair bit of rehabilitation, but ultimately they amputated my leg that evening. Um, I was in a coma for four days. I woke up without my leg and thought, this looks big. I'm lucky to be alive. Let's crack on my part two.
1: That is quite extraordinary, if I may say so. There's not many times you speak to someone who says, luckily, I went into it with my feet and lost my leg and thought, great, I'll get on with the rest of everything. I mean, <laughs> in a nutshell, that must carry with it so many nights of readjusting your vision of where your life was going and what you were going to do.
2: yeah. I suppose, so. I mean, your, your pre-accident disposition plays a big role in uh, And I like to think I've always been a positive person, glass half full, but racing in the Isle of Man, you know, you, are pretty much signing your life away. If you slip off over there, there's going to be a chance you're going to come back, you know, in a box. And unfortunately in that year, five of my competitors did, it was a bad year. And I was just thankful that I wasn't the sixth one. And, uh, it gave me the opportunity to you know, have part two of my life.
1: Well I suppose context is all and um, if it's been something in your family uh, for a long time that kind of accommodation of risk but might not go there too much more but as you say in comparison to some of your fellows I I could see why you do think you're lucky but so what was the sort of start of your journey back as you say you wake up in a coma your legs missing and you think lucky me and then I said what are the sort of steps from there?
2: Well things got even luckier (laughs) just to go through the story so I was after about two weeks, I was uh, due to be flown home to Luton Dunstable Hospital to be near my family. And so uh, a medical evacuation flight was arranged uh, that would transport me, two nurses, and the pilot on a six-seat aircraft from the Isle of Man back to Luton, and I would transfer into there. And because I was going from one hospital to another, they wanted to put me in an isolation ward. So that was all set up, ready to go. So that morning, I'm sat in my wheelchair bag packed on my lap ready to go in the ambulance to go to the airport when uh Luton dunstable rang up and said unfortunately we haven't got an isolation bed for scott you can't come so i got pushed back to my bed and thought oh, that's disappointing you know you get geared up for it so a gentleman who'd cut his hand on some architrave doing some plastering some diy he took my seat with his wife and the two nurses and the pilot and they took off to go back to liverpool airport for some plastic surgery and uh As a plane was coming in on finals at at Liverpool airport, the pilot had a heart attack and the plane crashed and everybody was killed on that plane. So I dodged a bullet twice in a month. Quite remarkable, really. I mean, absolutely tragic for the family, of course, but um, somebody, I'm not a religious person, but somebody was looking over me, I think.
1: Goodness gracious.
0: Sorry, you should see mine and Emily's faces on the screens (laughs) at the moment. Because when you started telling the last bit of that story, I thought, this is going to go where I think it's going to go. So I can understand your outlook on life following, if not the first, but definitely the second incident.
2: Yeah. So very fortunate boy. And uh, eventually got back to Luton Dunstable. And then uh, was discharged from there to my local limb fitting centre within the NHS. And it's funny, before... You know, you get these sorts of injuries. I just thought I'd go to Stoke Mandeville. I thought that's where everybody goes if they have a disability. But of course, that's spinal injuries. And they said, no, no, you go to your local fitting centre. And I said, where's that? They said, Luton. I thought, well, I've lived here for 18 years. I didn't even know there was a fitting centre in Luton. You know, So I wheeled myself down the road to the fitting centre and met my prosthetist. Claire there who had not long graduated. I think she'd been in, in post about six months and uh, we've been together now for 22 years. she's been my only prosthetist in the NHS. I do get provision you know fortunately at, at pace but Claire still looks after me within the NHS and uh, you know she's come to my wedding and uh, we have a good relationship you know it's, an amputation is for life, not just for Christmas so we have a good time together you know and we don't see each other that much now because I'm fairly established but it's a nice working relationship.
1: That's really interesting to describe it as a working relationship because quite often medicine is something that's sort of done to us and you go through a process and then you come out the other side and then you leave your doctor behind. I mean, there's not very many instances when you get to know a doctor or a care provider for the longer term. But I guess the sort of development of your prosthetic life is very dependent on you and what you do and how you do things. And so that sort of relationship feeding back to the prosthetic provider becomes quite crucial.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of other injuries which kind of slowed my process. I was six months in a wheelchair, then another three months at least on crutches Non-weight bearing on my sound side, so I was using crutches on my prosthetic side, which really helped me in my proprioception, you know, knowing where your prosthesis is in space, getting around. But then I had some misalignment on the sound leg, so had I think three different external fixators before I went down to see uh, a consultant, Mr. Groom, at King's College Hospital in London, and he put an Ilizarov frame on my leg and really gave me my, my mobility back. So he cut out a couple of inches of dead bone from the leg put the two faces together and then slowly started stretching the leg out from below the knee. And after about three months of that, it was all getting a bit tight and, i uh, could feel each turn of the, the spanner that you had to do each day. And, uh, I had to go back to see him I said, look, can we just cut an inch off my prosthetic side and take this frame off and he said yeah let's do that so I'm now an inch shorter than I used to be but it meant I didn't have to go through the pain of stretching the leg out again so every yin has a yang
1: (laughs) just for people that might not be au fait with the process and what you have just described is essentially a process when your leg is left with the two ends of the bone not meeting because you've taken out I guess it was an infection or dead bone or whatever it wasn't that you're having non-union of the bone Okay, so the normal mending process can't work. So what you do is you cut the bit out and then you force the bone to grow itself back together again with the frame and you turn the frame to help
2: encourage it to grow. Exactly right, yeah. So the two faces of, get rid of the dead bones, those two good faces are then put together and clamped together. Then the bone is broken just below the knee and you slowly stretch out one millimetre a day. That's four quarter turns on four bolts every day stretching it down from below the knee down so effectively your calf is kind of a bit lower on that leg than it would normally be because you're stretching down but there's nothing to compare it to anyway so it doesn't really matter aesthetically and that got the alignment back and got me my mobility back and once i got that i was away again and i guess from accident till then was probably getting on for a couple of years which meant I wasn't putting huge demands on my prosthetics because I was just transferring from wheelchair to bed and stuff but once my legs were straight again and I could weight bear properly then I went through the process of keep breaking things you know within the provision for me NHS so you kind of have to keep proving yourself and uh, I'd go on to the next thing and I'd say All right let's try this foot now and then I'd break that and then go on to the next thing so it took A few years, in all honesty, to get onto the type of provision which I'm now established on and comfortable on. And it's part of my daily routine when I get up in the morning, unplug my phone, put on my clothes, put on my leg and go to work. And at the end of the day, reverse it. So the leg's on all day, every day, unless I've got an infection or some issues. And that's now my daily routine.
1: Okay. So you've just glossed over the regrowing of your bone, which is a very difficult and quite painful process. And you've got through that, but you've just explained to us a little bit about developing your prosthesis and trying different things and things working or not working or going back and trying it. Could you just elucidate that a little bit more in terms of what kind of prosthetic you're offered first and, and what this development process may be?
2: yeah i mean the nhs has a budget and they do a fantastic job you know within those parameters but essentially you know there's just a few hundred pounds allocated to each patient to provide their prosthesis so in the early days i'd have something that was very basic just a, like a plastic cover around the socket down to the ankle with a very basic foot and uh, with you know virtually no energy return. it was like walking on a piece of wood and that wouldn't meet your needs you know and you'd you'd break stuff and they'd say okay well, let's try a foot that maybe has some cushioning in it or some articulation in it, maybe a carbon fibre foot. So you kind of go through these processes. And that's the big thing that I've noticed from the difference between the private and the NHS sector. And I'm not slagging off the NHS at all. They do a great job. But in the private sector, we tend to start people on what they're going to continue on, you know, not to go through these processes of breaking bits and pieces. Let's start people on the good stuff which they're going to be using ultimately anyway. So all of that, you know, you spend a lot of time at your limb centre early doors but as time goes on that that reduces and you get back to your life.
0: Emily and I from our experience will know that the two-year procedure you are on about there you must have been very close to almost losing your remaining leg during that period.
2: Yeah I mean ignorance is bliss isn't it obviously now in the in the role here I do at PACE I meet a lot of patients who have come to us either with electro amputations or amputations because that procedure with the frame has gone wrong or it just hasn't worked and so I, I was completely oblivious as to how risky it was, really. But it was just the next step. You know, my leg was in such a bad shape that this was the next thing to do. And I never really thought it would fail. And thankfully, it didn't. Otherwise, I'd be you know, a bilateral trans amputee, which is you know, a different level again. So I was very fortunate. I was in good hands with Mr. Groom. And uh, haven't looked back. He gets a Christmas card from me every year.
1: I think he probably deserves that. And then can you help us a bit? You talk about breaking your prosthesis. So obviously your sort of first prosthesis is literally a sort of clunky old, you know, walking on, as you say, walking on a plank of wood. What is it that's breaking?
2: Often it's the foot. And also you're changing volume significantly in those early months. You're shrinking down. And it's keeping comfortable in that prosthetic socket, almost like Russian dolls that fit inside each other. You shrink down and the sockets chase down that volume change. And I don't think it's unfair to say that quite often you're waiting weeks for appointments in the NHS. And so even the best prosthesis in the world, if they take some measures of you and you come back four weeks later to try and socket based on those measures, it's not going to fit you know, because you've changed in that time frame. And I think that the private sector can react to those changes much more quickly and keep somebody comfortable so they can be doing their rehabilitation and their physiotherapy.
0: So, you've talked about your prosthesis, but it's not just prosthesis on its own, it's physiotherapy and other therapies and treatments. What else were you getting during that period?
2: Yeah, so there was some physiotherapy, but essentially, once you were able to get up off the floor safely on your prosthesis, then you're pretty much signed off in terms of physio support and then you're away so i spent a lot of time walking towards shop fronts you know glass doors seeing how much your body was swaying side to side and trying to improve my gait and it was kind of left to my own devices really it's just how it is that's very different you know in, in the private sector you get a lot more support for that that's what you're paying for really
1: so I love the idea of you walking up to glass doors so you can see yourself, what you look like, but that's quite a lonely route and, and providing your own motivation must have been quite tough. I mean, I suppose, is there a, now a kind of tech advancement of looking at people's gait and analysing what they're doing and helping to provide a sort of better way forward in terms of how you move and what your motion's like?
2: There actually is, but that's in the private sector and no, it's not commonly available in the nhs i'm not here to slag off the nhs at all as as i've said they get you up standing and safe in a way and that's it you know it doesn't go much more beyond that they do a great job but the vast majority of amputees in the the country i think it's like 80 85 are through vascular disease or diabetes and they're not putting tremendous pressures and demands on their prosthesis so when somebody turns up maybe with um Know, amputation due to sarcoma with cancer or a trauma without a litigation claim behind them, they don't quite fit that model. Or you know they, their demands are much greater, and we see patients you now here who come to self fund, and, and it's it's hard because prosthetics are expensive, and it is a lifelong condition. You know somebody could pay 20,000 pounds for a prosthesis, and nine ten months down the line, you know it's not fitting them so well. It's a difficult conversation to have, but we have a few tricks up our sleeves or the prostitutes, the clinicians do here to get more longevity out of sockets and clever use of various materials and stuff. It, it's an expensive business, I'm afraid.
0: So we've spoken about your experience, which was through your racing. Emily and I deal with claims from both sides of the spectrum following an accident, and we instruct various organisations to assess somebody following an amputation, say a cyclist who's come off and had an amputation and they come to PACE. What is the approach in terms of getting that person from the first injury through to walking out the door independent at the end of the process?
2: Sure. Well, every single person who comes to us, regardless of who's funding it, whether it's litigation or self-funding, we carry out a clinical assessment. And that's typically with our multidisciplinary team, certainly at least a prosthetist and a physiotherapist, and they'll get a little bit of background about the person person they were pre-accident, what their current situation is and what their aspirations are. And from that, make their recommendations and prescriptions for the prosthetic and associated therapy services to let that person advance and, and restore their life they take that report away and can make an informed decision from there. Some people come back, some don't, some stay in the NHS. Some people, they get the funding through the litigation claim and we can get started with them. But ultimately, it's an absolute team effort. And aside from the physio we have occupational therapists, we have counselling from clinical psychologists. All these together, the clinicians will drop in and drop out in, in terms of supporting that patient to restore their function and, you know, sometimes they're positioned back in the family, you know, it doesn't just affect the individual. Very often when we're carrying out assessments, you know, their spouse will come along and it's quite an emotional, tearful experience going, you know, reliving that situation. And very often the partners and immediate family are even more affected by the situation
1: suppose as well, any life-changing injury is life-changing for everyone you're close to as well. And I suppose also, you know, reflecting on, as you said, many people in the NHS, the predominant is, is diabetical vascular disease and will also tend to be amongst an older cohort, whereas whatever the cause of your accident, people like you and in, in the sort of prime of life that are having an accident and have been very active and have had that taken away from them, have a different kind of need and requirement from their prosthetic device to give them back that kind of active life. So I mean, some of the sort of technological responses of, of the ability to provide assistance with prosthetics is quite remarkable. I wonder if you could help us with some of the limbs or, or whatever that pace rehabilitation has up its sleeve.
2: I think a good analogy is to think of your prosthesis as your pair of shoes. And, you know, as an able-bodied person, you wouldn't go out for a run in your wedding shoes, and equally, you wouldn't wear your trainers to go swimming. You know, you change your footwear to suit the activity you're doing. For an amputee, you're going to change your prosthesis. So we have activity-specific devices. Generally, you have uh, what we call an ADL for activities of daily living. That's your everyday prosthesis. And there's going to be times when that needs to go back to your clinic, you know, to pace or whatever for adjustments or for maintenance. So very often, somebody who have a backup version as well. It's a spare, and that may have a cosmetic cover on it. It may not. Then they may want to, maybe they were a runner or a keen cyclist or a mountaineer before the accident, and they want to get back to that activity. So there might be an activity-specific device for that. And... Also, um, swimming is a fantastic activity for amputees because, you, you know, your body supporters. So you might need a device that can allow you to transfer into water. Very often, it's actually easier to take a prosthesis off to swim, typically, but you need to get safely from either the changing rooms or from the beach into the water. So you might have a water activity-specific device to enable you to do that. So all of a sudden, you need a bigger shoe cupboard because you've got five or six different prosthesis in the cupboard to support your interests and in your activities. So. It, That's a good way of thinking about it, I think. And in the two decades I've been an amputee, technology has definitely moved on very significantly, equally as have costs. With improved function comes increased cost, and there's devices that are available now that are powered to give you assistance, and there's devices that are... Smart in as much as they react to the environment that, that they're in. So it detects if you're coming uh, going up a hill or downstairs or whatever the, the terrain is. And they react to keep the patient safe to have, you know, minimize the risk of falls, which is, you know, the main risk as an amputee, particularly early on. You don't want to be falling over and breaking your wrist because then you can't use your crutches and, you know, it just has a big knock on effect. So it's about keeping the patient safe and secure and comfortable as they go through their rehabilitation.
0: So today we've kind of focused on lower limb amputations, but equally there's upper limb amputations and that brings with it a whole different raft of questions and issues from a lower limb. Are you able to help us a bit more in terms of an upper limb? I know I've had a claim in the past with a guy who cycled coast to coast post upper limb. He lost his arm right through the shoulder, so upper limb, and he he managed to cycle and get back to activity. I don't think he even had a prosthetic at that point.
2: Right. Yeah, it's similar to lower limb in as much as different activities may require different devices. There's a few options essentially available. There's body-powered devices, which require harnesses across the backs of the shoulders and making your body movements open and close, you know, um, split hooks or mechanical hands. That's one option, and people get very good function from that. Moving up from that is maybe something that is powered, uh, so a myoelectric device which is controlled by your muscle contractions to put it into different modes to do different functions. And most recently, there's now a system uh, which uses a lot more sensors on the residual limb to be able to control the device through various different functions at once. So if you imagine with uh, a basic myoelectric arm, if you wanted to pick up a cup you might raise your hand up you might then turn your wrist around to get to the cup then open your hand and close your hand to pick up the cup so there's essentially four different movements there and to get to do each of those four different functions you have to change the mode by contracting and relaxing your muscles and sending signals to sensors to change it all and it's very demanding on the user to be able to do that and it's quite jerky you know you go one stage to the next stage to the next stage but with the co-app system now you can incorporate all those three at once and it just makes things a lot smoother a lot easier a lot less demanding for a patient and the gentleman who's recently taken one from us he said he wears his arm longer during the day now because it's just less demanding for him to use so that's a huge improvement for him and for those types of users. I think you know, as, as a lower limb amputee, if you want to go somewhere, you've got to put your leg on. As an upper limb amputee, you've kind of got the option whether you wear the arm or not. And some people have coping strategies to not use their prosthesis. Uh, comfort and, and weight might determine whether somebody wears their device you know, for a few hours a day or all day, every day. Everybody's different. And that's the important thing of the clinical assessment is to understand people and their environment and their aspirations to provide them with the appropriate equipment to restore them as, as fully as possible to you know pre-accident position
0: well that brings us back nicely to the fact that post accident you went back
2: on a motorcycle. yeah
1: <laughs> your poor mum is all i can say <laughs> well, that's true the, the
2: funniest thing was uh, my wife my wife at the time we're still friends but my wife at the time the consultant after doing the invitation he said to her you know probably want to get back onto a motorbike it's in his blood and considering the situation what had just happened my wife said well it's not his blood is it it's transfusion blood which i thought was pretty sharp given the circumstances (laughs) but it's right you know i couldn't wait to get back onto a motorbike certainly and when i finally got back to luton Dunstable hospital a physiotherapist came in to see me i was in my side ward and she said, I don't normally see amputee patients. She said, but I am an amputee myself. So they thought it might be a good idea for me to come in to have a chat so you can you know, see what's what. So she took her prosthetic leg off and I held it and felt how heavy it was and that kind of stuff. And uh, I said, to, would you mind um, pumping up my bed, make it a bit higher with your prosthesis? So she did that. And she said, is that any better? I said, oh, it's fine before. I just wanted to check I could pump up my tyres on my motorbike when I get out of here. And she, she, still, she still chuckles about that now.
0: Oh my God, I can't believe that. So you got back on your motorbike, but you've also done quite a lot of other different sports. Your life hasn't been hampered by this. And if anything, you've had a lot of various opportunities which will move us towards Star Wars. But I'll leave you to tell the
2: story. Yeah, absolutely. I always say, you know, when you acquire a disability, some doors close on you, but other doors open. And uh, I've always been fairly sporty, but not any to any great level but through being an amputee I've now represented my country at, at para badminton golf as well and these things would never have come along before you know I might have been playing at a club or county level but to represent your country is a, a very special thing and, and uh, so that kind of feel like it's enriched my life and uh, I do quite a bit with the military services and being a casualty you know blown up soldier get thrown out of the back of a land rover with a, a severed limb screaming and hollering and then somebody comes and kneels on your groin, gets a tourniquet on you, puts you on the back on a stretcher, onto a helicopter and away again, you know, that, that's great fun. And off the back of that, I got contacted a few years back by a, a military guy saying that there was a, an agency looking for amputees and to get your names down, boys, you know, he sent it out to a couple of hundred people. I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I enrolled with an agency called POP and, uh, Literally, six days later, I got an email, can you be at Pyman Studios for a fitting? And that Pyman's just 20 minutes from my office. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, OK, I'll be there. So I turn up, and they say, are you Scott? Yep. Are you here for your fitting? I was like, yep. I <laughs> didn't know what that was going to be. They said, OK, can you just give us your camera phone? And they put some tape over the camera lens, and got me to sign this piece of paper, and said, "Right, just go through that door there. And I went through, and I'm looking at R2D2 and C3PO, and there's a Chewbacca, and I'm thinking, what could this be? <laughs> you know? So
1: you had no idea no that you were idea walking onto a set of Star Wars. That is
2: amazing. So they said, right, let's take some measures of you. You need to measure and, and say, right, come back next week and we'll start your costume fitting. And I'm like, okay, is that it? And they said, yeah. And they had a tiny little black and white pencil drawing of this creature that looked like a toad, sort of alien, with a prosthetic leg that was the shape of like, like a funnel. And they said, oh, that, that's the character we're making you in. You're just going to be a background person in, in this particular scene. But we can't tell you what the film is. We're not allowed to mention what the film is. I thought, yeah, yeah. I wonder what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so this we went through this process about six times, I suppose, gradually refining the costume. And then uh, towards the end, they said, uh, they came up to me and said, um, Scott, I hope you don't mind, but we'd like to put some, Animatronics in the head to make it move and come to life a bit more. So, would you have any objections to that? I said, No, of course not. It's absolutely fine. So, uh, made this head that it blinked and all these facial features, you know, could be controlled remotely. And then we had to do a show and tell. And there was about 50 of us, 60 of us, all background crew, or mm-hmm. so cast extras. And uh JJ Abrams, the director, came round and he saw this. Head and everything moving. So oh, we need to feature this guy more. We'll bring him to the front. Bring him to the front. Actually, um give him some lines. So all of a sudden, I've gone from being at the back to a speaking part. Then I had to have my costume sort of captured while I was in it. So I went to this tube of like 200 cameras, that, SLR cameras that took a simultaneous photograph, and then from that they produced a 3D figure. And you can buy the action figure in the shops now of my character. I mean, it's just mental that. This is the first ever job that I did, and it, it turned into that. So I go to the conventions and stuff now, and uh, it's just an, another another avenue that you has know, opened up. So who are you? Who am I? So the character is called Quiggold, and he's a, a, a pirate character. him and uh, his sidekick try and help John Boyega's character, Finn, to escape. And I'm in the film for probably a total of about five seconds, but it's five seconds more than most people.
1: And you still go to conventions? I mean, the five seconds is enough to make you one of the heroes.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you probably know, a lot of Star Wars fans are absolutely fanatical, you know, and, and they actually like meeting the, the smaller characters, you know, the lesser-known ones. You know, that's more of a coup. Any, anyone can queue up and and get Mark Hannon's autograph or or Harrison Ford's, but you know, these obscure characters, the fifth Stormtrooper from the left in that scene, you know, that that's that's that can be quite niche.
1: <laughs> and then the final question about that is you had lines hmm. so what language are you kind of going Brandorigo? pretty much
2: yeah that's all dubbed that's <laughs> dubbed i mean i couldn't see or hear anything inside the costume i just had an earpiece and they would say right scott the cat you know john's on your left now so then you'd turn and react to him and it was just basically acting in the dark it was exhausting i mean i couldn't believe how hard it was and i had to walk up some steps as well which was just i had to walk backwards before to kind of pace it out so i could walk forward step up confidently uh, up the stairs and with film work you do that 20 times you know there's so many different takes it's just an absolute different world than something i never would have had the opportunity to experience you know with all four limbs so that's another bonus
0: well i do know that my brother is going to be very uh interested when i tell him that <laughs> fact later today
1: and he's not a proper star wars geek but still it'll be really yeah I think it is amazing that you are also our first film star. I mean, that is quite the thing. That's brilliant. Hilarious.
2: I was on uh, Game of Thrones in the first episode of the new series. So the day somebody sent me a video clip of that, having my legs severed off by a knight in a medieval jousting scene and then dragged up the road and screaming and hollering. So all the the screaming and hollering we do with the army came into good practice there. That's the latest TV or film big screen appearance
1: <laughs> so did they give you a limb and then they literally cut it off
2: yeah we, we spent a lot of time making this remote control hinged leg so that as the guy struck me a guy offset would push the button that would release a lock so the leg would collapse as he struck me and we trialed and tested this for weeks and then when we got on set it broke so we used a cable tie <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. That's brilliant. We could chat about this all day. It's absolutely fascinating.
2: You've digressed a little bit. Oh,
1: but... no, no. I think it is completely on point. But I it mean, it's absolutely fascinating to hear about everything that you've done and everything that's come your way.
0: I think you cover two aspects. You're an amputee who's lived a very full 22 years since he lost his limb, but also your day to day experience at work and knowing what faces an amputee and what rehabilitation experience they're likely to have these days.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. Sometimes you have to think back to what it was like, because it is tough in the first couple of years. You know, it's a pretty rotten time. Your life's turned upside down. And as I say, you know, chasing down these volume changes and legs don't fit, you know, it takes a while to get established. But myself and my colleague, Jamie Gillespie's process here, he's a fellow amputee, you know, we don't always walk around in shorts. Sometimes we have our trousers on and uh, patients will meet us a couple of times and maybe they're struggling and they say, you know, you don't know what it's like. And you kind of roll up your trouser leg and they go, ah, oh, okay. And you see their brain working thinking, I, I never noticed that you wear a prosthesis. And they're thinking, I want to be where you are. You know, obviously there's years of experience behind that, but it's hopefully giving them a little bit of encouragement that things can get better and you can get back to leading you know, a very full and functioning life. It obviously it's harder, the higher the level of amputation above knee amputees, so much harder. Energy expenditure. Costs, just the comfort, you know, the socket's a lot more intrusive. It's right up in your, in your groin area. So I've kind of got the easy gig being uh, baloney, it makes things a lot, lot simpler.
1: Well, I, I think that's a significant testament to you that you say you've got an easy gig. But I think also, you, as know, you're saying, that idea of people being able to see. The lived a life is possible and maybe that was what you also got from your physiotherapist when she came to see you with her amputation and you know as she said pumping up the bed to show you what can be done but just that recognition that there is life after amputation and indeed a full and good one and thank you so much for coming along today and sharing your story with us I really do appreciate it it's been a real pleasure to meet you and chat about it all
2: I could talk about myself for hours <laughs> <laughs> But well, I mean, I'm in quite a fortunate position. You know, we get to try out some of the kit and technology, sometimes before it's commercially available, uh, sometimes at launch you know, and a salesman. So it does this, it does that, and does the other. You put it on, you go, well, no, actually it doesn't. Or, yeah, yeah, I can see the benefit of this. And we can try stuff out and then it's easier to recommend to patients, for the clinicians to recommend. It's just, you know, yeah, another It's a USP, I suppose, being at pace, but um, it's a good one. It benefits the patients.
1: The ultimate consumer
0: guide. (laughs) Well, I think for Emily and I as well, it's bearing in mind we deal with claims where we deal with amputations. It's good for us and for the people who listen to this podcast who deal with similar claims to see where the ultimate outcome can be kind of thing. So it's really useful.
2: I always think it must be frustrating from a defendant's side that essentially you're just seeing a reference number here or writing checks to somebody you never meet. And I understand the litigation process, but if we can make it slightly more personal and, and understanding of what difference it's making to an individual, you know, okay, we are asking for another 50,000 pounds for this prosthesis, but this is what it can do for that individual on the human level, you know, that's much more powerful. And we organize annual conferences and invite everyone who's involved all the key stakeholders in it, personal injury claims to be involved in that and to see the difference it makes at a human level for individuals and I think that's really important for the insurers and defendants to have that opportunity it just makes it more real
1: I think that's right and I think in the right kind of case obviously when liability isn't necessarily a a significant issue that's something that's been a real game changer with the whole rehabilitation code and the way that has led through to it being a commonplace thing for all of the parties and but obviously defendant led with the checkbook to be engaged in proving the life of the claimant as much as possible because it's beneficial to everyone and I think that is something that has definitely changed in, in the nearly 30 years that I've been in practice that engagement by defendants to and ensure to be part of that improvement process and and it's great that people like you are helping to facilitate that and, and move things forward.
0: Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Scott. i really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: Thanks for your opportunity.
1: Oh, I've really enjoyed it. I can't tell you how exciting it is to have had our very own film star as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to meet you.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: See you next time, Emily. See you next time, Caroline. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barristers Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.